it's it's lovely to be here. This is the this is the ladies' smoking room, um, which was the first. Uh, this is actually true. The first public space um, where women were allowed to smoke. Um, I know feminism, amazing, and um, and I, I like to think of it as the smoking ladies' room. Um, we we have a terrace back there, which we've closed right now because it's a bit windy and rainy um, and twerky. But you can go out there in the interval, um, ladies and gentlemen, in fact, and smoke, um, which is nice for those of you who have addictions. Um, so you can you can you can go and do that. Anyway, shall we begin with the lovely Patrick? Patrick sent me um, his excerpt as a work in progress. It's a place called Winter. Patrick Gill. Thank you, Damien. I'm going to stay here, but I'm not going to say anything. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah. I thought we were going to It's a slight chat. variation. No, no, oh. you're, no, you're going to read in there. Keep talking, keep talking, because okay, I need okay, water. Okay. This is very, very strange for me, ladies and gentlemen, because this is what I normally make students do on Arvin courses. Um, and the great thing about being a tutor on the course is you don't have to do the painful stuff, they do it Um, so I'm sharing with you a work that I was writing on the train today it's that that raw and that naked Um, I'm pleased to say that my editor is here and she's read as much as Damien has read she's looking quite nervous Uh, I said I wasn't going to say anything it's it's a complete departure for me because it's it's historical Um, every family has a black sheep or a mystery and my family has both in that um, I have uh, I had a great grandfather who was banished to Canada made to abandon his wife and his baby girl and never came back except in the 1950s when he very briefly came to visit my mother when she was newly married and nobody would ever tell me why he had gone and so of course I've decided he was gay um, <laughs> And what I do in the book is to tell as much of the truth as I know. So I don't, I don't deny the, the facts as they are, but then I do depart from them as soon as I get the chance. So the facts are these. He and his brother married into an enormous family of ten children um, who lived in West London. He was rich. His brother wasn't rich. His brother was a vet. And um, one of their sisters-in-law was very naughty, and she rebelled against her convent school education and went on the stage as a gaiety girl. Now, gaiety girls were just as exciting as they sound. They were the it girls of the 1900s. They basically walked up and down on stage in fabulous frocks and hats and sang and advertised soap. And most of them, if they were lucky, married aristocrats. My my great-great-aunt Patty obviously it was a bit like me, and she put out too early. So she got, her, she got a very nice gold watch and a house in Pangbourne, but the aristocrat moved on. Um, but I, I imagine that my, my, my hero, Harry, my great-grandfather, um, goes to her first night at the Gaiety and meets a rather forceful member of the chorus, a male member of the chorus. And this is where they, they first meet in private. He found he was shivery, perhaps through having got so wet on the ride with Jack, so headed to German Street after lunch, thinking a Turkish bath would warm his bones a little. But he found he had passed the entrance to the baths and made for another doorway entirely, which stood between two shop fronts. He had burnt Mr. Browning's card in the grate when he found it in his trouser pocket the morning after the trip to the Gaiety, but apparently the handwritten address on its back had burned itself onto his consciousness first. It was a flat, he imagined. There were many such in the neighbourhood, small roosts for bachelors. 
He had several times heard it said that no lady would ever be seen there on account of this, the implication being that mistresses, or worse, were the only women likely to be visiting an address there. He saw well-dressed women buying cheese in Paxton and Whitfield and soap and such in Floris, but perhaps they did so with a grim, breath-holding air before slipping back up to the relative respectability of Piccadilly. And thrice in ten minutes, he saw women enter or leave by a door that wasn't a shop's. There was no knocker or doorbell, only a front door in need of paint, propped open with an umbrella stand. There was a dim glimpse of a hall with a battered table where post could be left. Presumably, bell pulls or knockers were on each flat's door further up. But what if they weren't? And Harry entered to find himself an intruder in Hector Browning's house, or worse, if he had mistaken the address, that of an indignant stranger. He stood on the other side of the street and started to examine the faces of the women passing by. Some were maids or cooks, to judge from the relative simplicity of their clothes or cheapness of their hats. But the others were harder to read, smart, smooth, polished, very occasionally daring. Were they blameless or scarlet? Mr. Browning was standing in the doorway. He was at once shorter and more handsome than Harry had remembered. He was in shirt sleeves and no collar, his cuffs neatly turned up, and he was relishing a cigarette and the sunshine and watching Harry with some amusement. He appeared oblivious to the throng of human traffic about them, and his attention had the effect of seeming to block it out for Harry too, so that Harry crossed the street without looking, causing a cabbie to curse at him. He held out a hand as Harry reached him. Mr. Kane, what a pleasant surprise. I wasn't sure I'd remembered the address, Harry said, only he stuttered badly on the W. Mr. Browning didn't wince or look away or finish his sentence for him the way people often did, but watched with interest. Forgive my déshabille, he said. You had no appointment. Uh, No, no, I hadn't, but I'm sure we can fit you in. He trod out his cigarette neatly on the pavement, then headed upstairs. Heart racing, Harry followed him, taking in a length of worn red stair carpet and hunting prints. He imagined the talk of appointments was for the benefit of passers-by, so was perplexed when, businesslike, Mr. Browning showed him into a consulting room hung with diaphragms of the lungs, mouth and tongue, and illustrations of the various arrangements of lips and tongue for different sounds. Among them, not especially apropos, were hung engravings of ancient Greek sculpture, charioteers, discoboloi, wrestlers. Never mind the rotism or the stutter for now, Mr. Browning said. We need to get you to breathe properly. At the moment, your speech is air-starved, like a bird in a box. Take off your jacket, please, and your waistcoat so I can see what's going on. That's right. I'll hang them here for you. Now, feet apart, a little further. Now breathe. I I am breathing. No, you're not. Breathe in. Fill your lungs. Keep breathing in all the way. Now breathe out. There. Too quick. Too starved. Stop being so afraid. I'm not. Trust me. You're terrified. Breathe in again, and this time say a nice long ah as you breathe out. Harry did as he was told, while Browning watched him critically. Again, Browning said, don't flinch. I need to touch you to feel what's happening. He stepped up behind Harry and placed the flat of one hand on his solar plexus. Ah, 
he said. Nice, slow one. Louder, louder. That's better. I want you always to think of your breaths when you speak. Always be aware you're using air to form the words and that you need plenty of it. Breathing is natural, but it's incredible how bad most people are at doing it. They breathe with barely a third of their lung capacity, and their speech is starved and hobbles as a result. Were you often scared as a boy? Usually. Of a man? Usually. Hmm. Now, I need to touch you in two places at once. He kept one hand in the middle of Harry's chest, but placed the other a hand span lower on his belly. Good, he said. So close now that Harry felt his words on the nape of his neck and could smell the citrus tang of some shaving preparation. You have some muscle there. Now I want you to use it. Breathe in again and say a long ah again. Don't be so self-conscious. All my neighbours are out at work and anyway, nobody could care less. But this time, as you're exhaling, I want to feel you pressing out on my other hand down there as hard as you can. I'll press in, but I need you to resist me. Feeling absurd and giddy all at once, Harry did as he said, pressing out on the gasp, the grasp that was burning into him, feeling sweat break out on his chest and back. And the ah he produced seemed like a shout, like no noise he normally made. Good, Browning said, hands still in place. Now breathe normally and say, I wasn't sure of the address. I wasn't sure, Harry began with no hesitation, no stutter, then broke off as he felt Hector Browning plant a firm kiss on the nape of his neck. For a minute or two they stood there, Browning's lips and nose pressing from one side and his hands from the other, and then, very, very hesitantly, Harry brought his hands up to press on top of the other man's, at which Browning kissed him again and brought one of his legs forward so that it was pressing between Harry's. I have... Harry began and stuttered. Stop, Browning murmured. Breathe in. Now tell me. I have absolutely no idea what to do, Harry said without stuttering. Don't be afraid. You're quite safe, and I know exactly what to do. Turn around. Harry turned to find Browning's handsome face inches from his own. Browning smiled, then kissed him. There was a small bedroom off the consulting room and a minute bathroom with a view of drain pipes off that. Some 40 minutes later, as they lay panting and naked across the bed, which was so narrow that one or other of them had always to be beneath the other, Browning murmured, most of my students come in the late morning. I am always free between two and four o'clock. My door won't be locked. If I'm out when you arrive, just get in the bed and wait for me. <laughs> that, 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 that grinding sound you hear is several of my ancestors spinning in their, in their graves. My glasses have actually steamed up. <laughs> and I dread it before. But, it's hot. But it, it, Thank you. Yes. It gets hotter. I know. <laughs> but what is so extraordinary is I wrote most of the book before I found a decent photograph of him. The only picture I had was one of him as a toothless, prematurely old man in the 1950s. Right. This really pathetic-looking figure. 
And I found this incredible picture, my brother unearthed, of him just at the age... Oh, well, you put that on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. and, and he, looks like, he looks like Aidan Quinn. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. So, um, so, so, so Harry um, has a stutter, and his, he's the older of the two. He's the, he's the rich one. He's the catch. He's the catch, yeah. as he yeah. described. Because my, his father made an absolute fortune out of horse-drawn, uh, as Alan Hollinghurst would say, omnibi, but we would say omnibuses. Um. <laughs> um, Alan, if you're listening to the podcast. Um, uh, but he's based on your great-grandfather, but yeah. what you think you know about him. So let's just Absolutely. kind of backtrack a mm. little bit, because um, the book is, is set in the UK, and it's also set in, in Canada. the remote wilds of Saskatchewan. Yes. Saskatchewan. Because in the 1900s, this is set just before the First World War, so that, that scene is about 1907, okay. um, there was this tremendous push to try to get British people or British sympathisers to colonise the new, newly opened um, prairies of Western Canada, which the railway had only just reached uh, before the Americans got there. Right. Um, the British were desperate that Canada should be theirs, this great wheat bowl. Um, and they did this incredibly um, mendacious advertising campaign with these photographs of acres of wheat that appears to have grown itself, just saying, come to Canada, it's wonderful. And of course, I'm hundreds, not sure it's changed that much, hundreds of people went there and then died of cold. I mean, it's, you know, no one said on the adverts that it gets to minus 40 routinely. And they drew, didn't they? Um, they had maps which were just to square and you just picked, like it's battleships, amazing. you just picked so a square I, and that could have been underwater. Your square, yes, and actually, well, the, 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 the Native Americans, the, the First Nation tribes people who were sold you know, to be fair, were sold plots of land, were often on purpose sold land that was underwater or on a mountainside or whatever it was appalling. Oh um, but I've, I've been to the square that my ancestor bought. I've been to his farm. What's there now? It's a beautiful farm. Right. Sadly, it's not ours. Right. <laughs> so uh, without telling us too much about what, happened to, mm. to, to what happens to Harry in the book, by the way, have you finished the book? Almost. I'm not almost. being your editor who's sitting there going, I've no. asked him that already. No, almost finished yeah, the book. Yeah. And you've decided what's going to happen to Harry. Oh, I've known all along. Okay. Uh, yes. The, okay. The, he, he, does, he gets a very hard-won happy ending. Okay. Um, it's, so, so it's, it's a, but it's very kind of broke back. It's a bit, it's a bit sort of, you know. Well, because things... Uh, who thing isn't is, buying this book already? Well, point, I, I mean, wanted, it's just like... I wanted to make it possible. I uh-huh. wanted to make it possible. So I, I, I wanted... It's not a fantasy. I mean, let's talk... Well, it's, it's not a fantasy. It's, it's, it's historical ca- fiction. It's historical fiction, and I've spoken Which is to new quite, for you. And I've discovered... I thought I was making this up, but I discovered that the prairies were indeed full of sexual rebels whose pa- families in England had banished them there because they were too embarrassing. So You've got to remember, this was not that long after the Oscar Wilde trial and the other trials of the 1890s. Yeah. So to, to be caught out as being gay was still a humongous thing. It was totally illegal in Canada as well, because Canada was re- basically part of England. It was worse in Canada, because depending on which judge you got in Canada, you could be executed. But there's nobody there to have sex with or to catch you. I mean, that's, that seems, well, seems to me to be part let of me, the, Let me put this in perspective. This, this man who is banished to Saskatchewan will find himself in a place where there's about one woman to every 60 men. Right, okay. Um, it was quite possible to have quite a good time. But what's it, what's it when we... <laughs> Despite the cold. When we talked about this before, I mean, I hadn't quite realised that the colonies were used in such a specific way. So, you know, straightforward criminals or baser criminals were sent to well, Australia, but more middle, kind of upper middle class then as gay now, sexual criminals Then as now, elsewhere. the middle classes used their influence and their ingenuity. So they would do anything to keep the family from embarrassment. So uh-huh. what happens in my book is that one of the brothers-in-law, who was indeed a lawyer, uh-huh. um, finds this incriminating evidence and destroys it. Mm 
to keep everything quiet on condition that Harry goes to Canada. Maintains the myth which my grandmother told me, which is that he's lost his money and has to go to Canada to make more money. So he leaves the wife and child with their, their brothers and sisters. So do you now know that that's a myth? Or, or, or I mean, no, has, has I will never know. No I will one... never know. I mean, I went out there, I was scrupulously honest. I thought, right, I'm going to try to find a second wife because his poor wife in England died horribly of breast cancer not that long after he went. So my poor granny was raised by all these aunts and uncles who just called her poor Betty right. all the time. Um, but no, there was no wife. There may well have been a boyfriend, mm. which I will never know about. Mm. What I did find were reminiscences written, you know, these books of reminiscences that people love doing in small country communities. We do them in Cornwall. They do them in Canada. Um, <laughs> and I found one of these, several that mentioned him, and they all said the same thing, that he... He, he, as they put it, batched it all batched those years. It. So he lived alone okay. oh, on this remote farm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. In okay. Canada, in that period, to be a bachelor didn't mean that you were unmarried. It just meant you were living without a woman. Right. So two men could live together, and they were described as batching it. Right. And they had these bachelor's balls. I found photographs oh of bachelor's God. balls, which were designed to entice women to move out to Canada to get, <laughs> to get pregnant, basically. But, but actually, they look incredibly off-putting because they're just photographs of rooms full of these heavily bearded men dancing together. <laughs> that still happens in Camden. That does still happen in Camden on Saturdays. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this... It's a big departure for you, and I want, it's a, it's to, I want a huge to know how departure. it happens. Well, it's funny. It's a huge departure, and yet it isn't, because, of course, the novel I've ended up writing, like all my other novels, is basically about family and the psychology of relationships. Mm. And there's a lot of psychiatry in it, too. I don't want to give away too much plot, okay. but I'm currently reading a horrendous study of early 20th century psychiatric techniques. Um, not good. Not good. And... But I don't know how... It, well, it actually, I realised later, you know how it is, you, you start a book just because you're obsessed with it and you don't realise what your motivation is. Mm. And it was only when I was halfway through, I remembered having once gone to a psychic for an article for the Evening Standard. I was testing psychics, so I had to go and see three different psychics in the course of one day, anonymously, to see and compare what they said. Uh-huh. And um, two of them said, you, that you, you must... You must write. They, 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 they both knew I was a writer. Uh-huh. Okay, maybe they'd been to Waterstones, I don't know. But this was a long time ago. Did you use your but real they both name? Said, you no, 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 no. Okay. I used a fake name. Okay. But they both said, you must write about the black sheep in your family. And I'd completely forgotten this. And I found the notes that I'd made mm. in my car after the, the meetings. And that um, was the great-grandfather? Or the yeah, grandfather. and I got, I got thinking about And it's such a good story. There is so much in there. And mm. the family he marries into are so fascinating. I mean, dear... Paul Patty, who went on stage, I and mean, that, that's a novel in itself, because she, she was a Gerty girl, she got the aristocrat, only he didn't marry her, she got the gold watch. Mm. The Great War comes, she goes off to be a nurse at the front, falls in love with a handsome Parisian, marries him, only to die of TB before she can even have a baby. Oh yeah, it's very, very sad. Sequel. So, yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> parallel. And, parallel so you, and so you went there this, this summer? Last summer you went to... You were, we, we it, just was, it was barely summer, summer. Yeah. it was still very cold. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And what, what, um, what was it? What was? Did anything happen that when you were there that, that you hadn't expected, or was it just kind of quiet writing time in the cabin? No, it was. It was strange. Actually, I got very spooked by the. I thought I was used to isolation. I rented a cabin in the middle of nowhere, as close to where his farm was as I could get, mm. um, and I did get quite spooked. Mm. Um, I've got into running in my fifties, and, and I made the big mistake of going running in the woods. Listening to music, and of course, halfway through this this huge word, I I suddenly thought, 
bears. And then I saw bear shit on the ground. Not Camden bear shit, this is real bear shit. And got completely freaked out. And of course, then thought the bears were after me. And you know, that, was, that was. I'm very you know, impressed that you knew what it looked like. Oh, I, I, I always do my research. Yes, you do, yeah, before you yeah. go. No, no, bear, bear shit is very, very distinctive. Every, and they do shit yeah. in the woods. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't resist that. Um, but I, I just want, again, to go back to this idea, because the, the historical... Because when we talked about it, you know, mm. the idea of you doing something that is, you know, very Edwardian in its structure and in its tone. Yeah. And, and it, I think I'm very interested in the idea as well that at this time, the popular novel, the trashy novel as a work of you know pleasure is 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 coming to the fore and you're you're playing to a lot of that there's a lot of cliffhanger and what i've read you may yes. have edited it but there's well, a lot it's of very the section you've read the english section is very self-consciously kind of forsterian yeah um and forster was a huge influence on me when i was starting out mm. uh, he and iris murdoch and i kind of embraced that yes but my my writerly challenge to myself was to try to write a sort of Forsterian novel, but but with the gay stuff in it, yeah, oh properly in it, rather and yet rather than, using yeah, using only the vocabulary, both internal and external, that my hero would dare use, and so trying to imagine what it would be like to be gay and yet not even have a word for it. Yeah, what did I mean? What, so I mean, then he gets married. He gets married or? twice in the course of the book, right? For for lovely reasons both times. Um, uh, he, en- he ends up, I, I give away this much of the plot, he ends up marrying this woman to protect her after she's been raped. Right. Um, but actually, she knows that he's sleeping with her brother. Oh, my God. So it's, it's the, it's the neighbouring farmstead, and it's all... It's so how do you stop yeah. that from going Channel 5? Because it could happen. <laughs> it, it could all go about Benefit Street in Canada or whatever, you know. I mean, well, no, I think, I think you stop to, it by... It's a fine by, line. I've, I've kept him innocent. He is yeah. terribly... He's a very he is, sweet... He's very attractive. He's a very sweet, innocent guy. Yeah. Um, I think he will give a lot of readers rape fantasies. Oh, he's a, ve- <laughs> he's a very... He's a very attractive man. Mr. Browning is initially attractive but becomes he's less attractive. Yes, he is yes, a shit. He's a shit. He's a yeah. shit. Yeah, he definitely is. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, sorry. Um, okay, so I'll take some, some questions. But look, would you imagine that Sylvia... How did you get in? <laughs> question. Do you have a question? The parallels are definitely there because there so still... the question for people who didn't hear it was what, oh. what are the parallels and differences I guess for for gay men then and I mean apart from you know being sent off to Canada there is there is actually a lot about it that I could recognise mm. the, the sense of fear about who you are for well example. and also I, th- I I think what what hasn't changed at all is the whole coming out to yourself process yeah um, and the coward the the kind of instinctive cowardice that that people would would have clutched at even more then than they do now and so I've I've, I've, kind of, I've tried to bring up lots of different examples for Harry to meet. It's a bit like a, like a quest novel, only he's in, in quest for himself, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, he meets Hector Browning, who is apparently quite together, but obviously a complete closet case mm. and, and, and quite a shit. Yeah, he he says a horrible w- thing, doesn't he? Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, he does. Ooh. And he meets some, some wildly effeminate chorus boys, but he also meets quite a lot of very straight 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 acting men which i i think were probably far more the norm because then even more than now most people didn't live in cities and so most gay people weren't in cities and yet they they had to function somehow 
Um, the hard bit about the research, though, wasn't so much the gay stuff, because thank God there is actually a lot of material now being clawed together about that. It's more the um, just, just stuff like underwear. <laughs> I had the most unbelievable day in the Victoria and Albert Museum. They have a library there trying to find some pictures of male underwear um, from that <laughs> period. And it was very difficult, actually, and I didn't how did succeed. You, how did you deal with that when you because went to the Because even the way curator. they sold it. I, <laughs> well, no, it's very hard, because inevitably people think you're a perv. When you start, so I had to kind of get a letter from my agent to send with my covering letter saying, on you, it's, bon it's a bona fide inquiry. He wants to look at some underwear. Please just show him some underwear. And it, it's very hard, because a lot of it has rotted, because it didn't, just didn't survive, because men, men then were rather dirty. Um, and, of course, a lot of them didn't wear any at all. They just tucked, in their, they tucked their shirt tails in if mm. they were, were working class. Um, nice boys had undies. But, um, but stuff like that. And, and you, you catch yourself getting completely sort of hooked on these silly little details that actually don't matter. But that's the uh, danger I had, of historical I had really fiction. good advice from Helen Dunmore, who just said, if you're writing a historical novel, tell the emotional story. Don't worry about the details. And then you can fill in the details later. It'll be obvious where the gaps are in your research, and you can, you can go back and find the underwear later if you really must. Yeah. <laughs> no, that is, that is a very good point. There are lots of... I think the problem with a lot of those, that historical fiction is that people are interested more in the mm. history than they are in the fiction, and clearly this starts with, yeah. the, with the story, and it has what all your you know, novels have, which is an incredibly strong voice, and it's also very funny at, at, at points. There's, a kind of, there's an arch tone, mm. and like, which, <laughs> I, which, which I quite like, a kind of fan-flutter Edwardian yeah. tone, which is very attractive. Um, question there, and then a question at the back. I think that... Is that Jojo? Hello, Jojo. Great question. Did you yes. speak to your family about I what you were going did, to do? I did, and I think this is partly why this book has taken so long to write. I've been waiting for my mother's Alzheimer's to get really bad so that <laughs> <laughs> she can't. Um, it's, it's a tricky one, but there is... My mother and my, her sister, my aunt, are the only two people left alive who, who ever met Harry. Um, and they only met him as a very old man. So I, I don't think I'm going to offend any immediate relations. But I'm bracing myself because, I, especially in the section Damien's read, I bring to life a whole load of my great aunts, and they all have loads and loads of family descendants who won't be too happy about all this stuff being raked up. And people have an amazing way of reading a novel and forgetting it's a novel if they think it's about them. Um, mm. you know, they always say your mother will think you're, you've had all the sex you ever describe and, um, I, and I'd quite you? like to have had some of the sex I've described I've been married a long time so. in Cornwall uh, question, question at the back I think it's Nikki I think I see a Nikki Oh, of course. <laughs> At which point I said, uh, Mother dear, when I was writing a novel about the First World War, did you think I wouldn't be interested to know that I was a
I, uh, that's that's a question that takes a little bit longer to answer, I think. But I love the I love the sound of of Bill. Bill. Said yeah. Bill. Well, actually, one of one of the aunts in this book, one of my great great aunts, um, was was actually great aunt Steve. Um, I've changed I've changed her to George, but she was Steve, which is short for Estevana, which oh. I always thought was. I read that name and I thought that it was completely made up. I'd never heard it before. There well, Estevana, of, Estevana, yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. Their mother, Mrs. Wells, was oh. an Emma Estevano, and then she called her daughter Estevana. Amazing. Yeah. Um, I'm aware that there's a gallery through here, and I'm just looking through there to see if anybody there has a, has a question. The other people in the room, they're looking a little bit lost through there, but they do feel connected emotionally <laughs> to what's happening in this room. <laughs> they do look like they are having an emotional response. Hi, hi, hi. Um, okay, well then, I think this is a really good place to leave it so that Patrick can not reveal everything before he's finished writing the novel. Thank you so much for getting up here from Cornwall. I love you. It'll be out in February. <laughs>